We're in a little bit of Paul's personal testimony. <clears throat> he had given us some information here before this point, very, very important information, of course, where Paul speaks about how he encountered Jesus uh, 100 to 200 miles north of Jerusalem en route to Damascus. And how when he received the gift of Jesus Christ, it was from Jesus personally. It wasn't from a program. It wasn't from <clears throat> man of any sort other than Jesus, God in the flesh. And he did not immediately then go and speak to a bunch of people to find out how much of it was reality. He knew he had encountered Jesus. 1 verse 17, he said he didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem <clears throat> to speak to those, but rather he went to Arabia, which we do not have in the book of Acts. We have here because the idea of it is Paul getting away, trying to figure out how everything he's learned reconciles with a living, risen Jesus Christ. After that, he then returned to Damascus. That's the end of verse 17, Galatians 1.17. And then after that, three years later, he did go to Jerusalem to see Peter and remain with him for 15 days. This is in the book of Acts chapter 9. By this point, he tells us that he left Jerusalem. He saw none of the other apostles while he was there except for James the Lord's brother. Now concerning these things, and I'm just giving us context for our text tonight, which I write to you indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Now he doesn't necessarily tell us the information that's going to be, that, that is in the book of Acts, which is that Paul fled for his life. They, he was in Jerusalem. There was a great deal of argument. And as a result of that, they took him to Caesarea and shipped him back to Cilicia. And I, I want you to realize the situation here as we get ready to read our text. Paul at that point becomes a local legend. And that's what he's basically saying by the end of, the, of chapter 1. He says that I was unknown by face to the churches in Judea, which are in Christ, which were in Christ, but they were only hearing that he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. Now, they're saying that while Paul is in, or actually Saul at the time, is in Cilicia. Now, please don't miss this. And again, never just assume what I say is true. Always compare it to Scripture. A lot of this is going to be very easy to do because we'll be able to compare it to the book of Acts. But Paul is shipped away. Now, there appears to be about a, a period of three years is what he tells us in this part of the testimony where Paul had gone to Damascus after his Arabia time and then gone down to Jerusalem. From there, they ship him off to where he came from. He's called Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. So in other words, they send him back home. And Paul tries to live a normal life. Now, listen... If God has placed a calling on you, magnificent, glorious, that's His choosing, that's not yours. His gifts and calling are irrevocable. That's what Romans tells us. God is never going to call you and revoke it. And Paul has a great calling in his life. The problem with Paul is he hadn't read the rest of the book of Acts because he hadn't acted in the book of Acts in a way to be recorded for it to be the book of Acts yet. So he doesn't know the future that we know now. We have the gift of being able to read that book of Acts and seeing it like we're watching a movie with a backstory already clear, the future already clear to us, but the character we're watching, it's unfolding for him. And that's really the situation with, with Saul. Now imagine, if you will, You've got a great calling on your life. The Lord's called you. And, and in the beginning, you tried to do it in your own strength. The terms that are used in the Acts chapter 9 are going to be terms that speak of Paul's debate skills, his argument skills. So, Paul, having been an educated debater from his time under Gamaliel, tries the new Jesus with the old program and it doesn't work. It's new wine in an old wine skin. But please hear me in that. God never called you to argue with the kingdom of God. He called you to preach the gospel. And Paul will learn that. 
He will ultimately tell the Romans that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. He'll ultimately come to that conclusion. He just hasn't gotten there then. And then Paul, imagine, he's flipping burgers. He's frying, you know, chips in fish. Or he's working at an MOT. He's, He's... Doing whatever he can do. Well, in his case, it was somewhere, I'm assuming it's here where he learns how to tent make. And he just tries to do a normal job like a normal Joe. Unaware, perhaps, that God has this amazing calling, except that God had told him something of that sort when he had first been blinded. Ultimately, 200 miles north of Jerusalem... A new church forms. It's in the area of Syria. More specifically, Syria, Antioch. And this church is different because this church is actually speaking to, well, to Jews and Hellenist Jews. It's a little bit more liberal in who it shares the gospel with. The problem is the church seems to need a pastor. And Barnabas, the man who introduces Saul to The Jerusalem church says, I think I know the guy. And he has to go to Cilicia to go find this Saul and bring him back. And Saul is going to be pastor of that church for a year. And I think it's interesting because many of the people who went up there ran from Saul when he was still unchristian before he knew Christ. They ran from him for, his, for their lives. And I mean, what would that be like? Imagine if, and we'll get into our text here about and how that will play into the book of Acts. But please understand, what would it be like if we all wound up in London because there was this madman and his whole ambition in life was to kill Christians. And so you, know, you fled Cyprus, you fled Brazil, you fled Portugal, you fled America, you fled Finland, you fled you know, you just, you're, you're, you know, San Lucia, you know, you put it here, you fled France, you fled, you know, Africa, you, wherever you fled, you know, the, the Caribbean, whatever it is, you fled it all. We all came here and we came here together, but the problem is we were in need of a pastor. And I'm like, you know, I think I've really got the guy. And then I come and I bring in the guy you fled from your home country that tried to kill you. How many of you would think, what kind of nut is this that brings a guy like this in here? But he becomes their pastor for a year. And you would think, wow, how long does it take for Paul to win their trust? But then after that, the Lord calls him out. The Holy Spirit speaks and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas for a work I specifically have. And off they go through the area of Cyprus, where Barnabas was originally from as a Levite. And they will take their first trip there. And as they take that trip, by the way, and then head back, something pretty radical takes place through all of this. Because during around, roughly, roughly around that time, just prior, Peter had had a vision. And that vision ultimately led him to the house of Cornelius, a Roman Gentile centurion who had filled his house full of people. And when Peter speaks, the Holy Spirit jumps them as they believe. And Peter has to explain in Acts 11... He has to explain that God really does save the Gentile. Please understand, before this point, Shammai, one of the traditional speakers who headed, if you will, the school, had taught the people that we, if, we were, if you fit into the category of Gentile, you're not pure-blood Jewish, Jewish, that we were created to fuel hell. That's what he had taught. So you couldn't imagine that such kindling and firewood would actually become saved. Paul now takes us 14 years later in Galatians 2. Look at it with me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and I also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation, and I communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Jew, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, this happened because of false brothers, secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. 
to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they are, it makes no difference to me. God shows, no favor- God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something, they added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcision or the circumcised was to Peter, for he who effectively works in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. So when James, Kephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived that the grace had been given to me, well, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, that very thing, which I was eager to do. Now, if that were the end of the story, that would be nice. But then it gets almost weird. Verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I resisted him or withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that They were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, Hey, if you, being a Jew, live in a manner of Gentiles and not like the Jews, why do you compel the the Gentiles to live as Jews? He's like, if you, born like a Jew, don't even live like a Jew, how could you possibly tell someone who wasn't to live like a Jew? There is no greater hypocrite The one who places the demand on another that he or she is unwilling to live out in their own life. We were Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works. Oh, by the way, look at verse 16 with me. Tell me if there's a word God's trying to point out. Knowing that that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have been have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in, in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Do you get it? But if we, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things in which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law, that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Lord, Now, speak powerfully. Minister so perfectly to us that we get it all. And speak, Lord, to each of us individually what we need to hear tonight so that, Lord, we could be changed. Do not let us not hear, not receive what you have made for us tonight. Jesus, in your name. Amen. The purpose of this trip to Jerusalem in verse 1 is pretty evident. The clarity from that comes in Acts 11 again, and then more specifically here in Acts 15. We read about a brand new group of people once Peter is returning back from this amazing time of people giving their life to Christ at Cornelius' house. It tells us, In chapter 11, verse 1 of Acts, and you can turn there if you like to kind of get a a reference. Go ahead, please. Acts 11, verse... Now when the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God... Peter came up to Jerusalem, to this, and it says, the circ- those of the circumcision contended with him. This is a brand new group of people we read here, the circumcision. And they said, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them. That's their accusation, because they all know that the moment you step into someone's house, you become part of their family. Now, the debate that takes place in chapter 11 is this. 
Can a Gentile be saved? Can a person be saved if they're not Jewish? The conclusion is, yes, yes, they can. Yes, we can. But that doesn't stop somebody from trying to still put on their bolt-ons. Now, understand, this debate becomes fundamental because the one thing that takes place here is the one thing that separates us doctrinally from every other religion on the planet, and that is grace. And here is the problem. If you make it about Jesus, it's got to be about grace. If you don't make it about Jesus, it will not be about grace. It will be about prayers. It will be about icons. It will be about sacrifices. It will be about the way you gave or what you gave and when you gave. But it can still be the case, by the way, within the church, even within the church, when we start taking our focus off of Christ and we start playing with pet doctrines. Like, for instance, when you watch somebody and their whole purpose is to convert the saved, you should be careful. So you just gave your life to Christ and someone says, so let me ask you, where do you stand on election? And you're like, How, why would I tell you that's May, that's May 7th? And they're like, no, 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 not the elections. Election. And you're like, what are you talking about? Well, did God personally choose you or did he not choose you? Well, if you're saved, then you're chosen, right? Well, well wait a minute, so do you stand? And then the reason I say that is it, it just makes people so confused. And it stops being about grace. Because now it becomes about somehow it's sort of God's fickle choice. And I'm not trying to pick on that because you can certainly stand in the... I mean, uh, there's a balance to all of this stuff. God certainly has a sovereignty and he's extremely... He's the smartest thing. He's perfectly smart. So, so his choices are wise. But if, you, if our focus is going to be on that, what in the world, how, do, how do we fit into that? We don't make it about Jesus anymore. And the moment we move away from Jesus, we move away from grace. Now understand what grace is. Grace is a gift that is given to you solely because the one who gave it to you is kind. And we're constantly trying to figure out why God would love us, why God would give that to us. But if we try to find a reason, it's no longer grace. Because then somehow we've earned it. Somehow we've elicited it. Somehow we've encouraged it. We've kind of said, all right, because of this, you can give me this. But if we can find a because in there other than we were desperately in need of it, and he loves us, any other answer we have is going to pull us out of grace. And that becomes the problem is the moment you step away from grace, well, then you actually start questioning, well, what is it that you're standing on to make you right with God? Because if you start playing with anything else at that point then what happens is you're going to come to God with something other than Jesus. And Paul says that will never work. There's the problem. So please hear me in this. The term that is used is the term justified. And justified that we saw there, and then we, move, we work our way through the text to see how that plays out, that justified is an accounting term, and the idea is simple. Justified is when everything that was in debt now is no longer in debt. The debt is fully paid and you're completely, as we might say, in the black. At which point now you've justified it. What that means is that you can close this thing up. I mean, it's, it's sort of like this. You ever have those like accounts? If you, you know, like when we were in America, we had this time where we were fairly greatly in debt. You know, but, and by the way, it took a miracle because we were not going to leave the country before those bills were paid. We were not going to leave with debt to come here to start this. And we knew that there were miracles that needed to take place, and God, of course, performed those miracles. I mean, I, I, I could giggle as I think about what God had done through that time. But the worst and peskiest things were always those credit cards. See, because somehow, even when you thought you closed it, they didn't think you should, or you, I don't know, what you didn't dot a, you know, a, an I or cross a T, or, you know, and they always kind of like, you know, you have to do it this and put it on purple paper and make sure you fold it only like this, like a, like a swan, and, you know, make sure it's mailed by this and make sure, you know, I think there's like 16 different processes that you have to go through. Does that make kind of, kind of make sense? But the worst part is when it's like, okay, you're like, just like, you, you know, like, I'm going to close it, but I, I, but it's like, there's, well, do I owe them three pennies or do they owe me three pennies? At this point, who cares? They do. But if you had three pennies in the account, you could say, for, I could forget about this account for the rest of my life now. But the moment it's in debt, you can't forget about it because you owe at this point. And that's the idea of the accounting term. 
And the, the, Bible, we, the simplest is we owed a debt we could not pay, and therefore Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. That's kind of the way it plays out. And the question is, who pays the debt? How do we get out of the red? How do we get out of that debt? And that debt is the guilt that has been incurred because of my sin. Now, if I were to try to pay that debt, the only way I could do it is by spending eternity away from God. Or, I could receive a gift. The one to whom I owe this has offered to completely wipe out all of my debt at the price of his own son. And of course, anyone who would offer you that in this world, we have a right to be very cautious. What, what, are, you, what are you trying to get out of it? But for someone to say, I just want to love you, I just want to adopt you and, and care for you and take care of you and vanquish your enemies and give you freedom, uh, you'd have a right to think that was a little weird. Especially when you're like, I just know you've, you sized me up and you, have, you expect something. And God's like, yeah, all your rubbish. All that you've mucked up, give it to me, all of it. And then when you lay it all down, I'm going to do something amazing with it. I want to turn your life into a masterpiece. So here becomes the problem. Paul as a pastor is furious. And the reason he's furious is because if you really walk away from grace, listen, if you walk away from grace, you've walked away from a relationship with God. So the beginning of this chapter, the idea of this is it tells us that by chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had returned back. They had returned back from this mission trip the Holy Spirit had sent them on. And when they came back, Gentiles were getting saved everywhere. And as Gentiles were getting saved everywhere, there's a, they kind of came back to Antioch and this group came up. These guys who had not been sent. But they took it upon themselves, these people from the circumcision. And this is what it says. And turn to Acts 15 so you can see what I'm saying. I remind you, Jerusalem is up on a hill, so it doesn't matter where it is geographically, they always come down from Jerusalem. And in Acts 15, verse 1, it says, Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brothers. It doesn't say they had been sent. It says they came down, which, by the way, seems to appear in the Greek that it was by their choice. And they said, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, custom of Moses, you can't be saved. See, what the people were saying is this group of people, these circumcisers, what they were saying is, okay, yeah, maybe a Gentile could be saved, but technically he has to become as much of a Jew as he could possibly first. And what that is, of course, is a work. It's no longer grace. And notice in verse 2 it says, Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Doesn't that sound so polite? Oh, it's like they're sipping tea and going, well, I, I disagree. I think they can be saved by Jesus Christ alone. Oh, no, 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 no. They must be circumcised first. <laughs> this is no small dissension we're having. <laughs> no, no, these guys, the idea of no small dissension are two Middle Eastern guys ready to punch each other in the face. Now, if you know anything about Middle Eastern guys, Middle Eastern guys look like they're about to fight when they're talking about the weather. So when it actually gets to the point where it looks like it's going to be a fight, that's probably a normal conversation for us more mild people. Notice I put a me in there too. That should scare you. But I've watched guys where they get to the point where you realize no small dissension is a big deal. And what happened is these guys showed up at Paul's church, if you will. I remember Paul had been kind of on tour doing this thing, this mission trip. And these guys sort of show up in there. And as they show up in there, they're like, you know what? I know all of you guys. How many of you here aren't born Jewish? How many of you aren't 100% Jewish? That'd probably be all of you. I just need to let you know, here is the new set of requirements from headquarters. Paul comes back. and He's like, who do you think you are? You want to see a pastor go mental? This would have been one of those moments. And there are groups, by the way, in London that are just like this. There's a group that goes around and they only go to churches and they pick off Christians and they start asking, let me ask you something. 
Are you, I'm not asking you, do you think you're saved? Are you a disciple? Have you been baptized? Yeah, but have you been baptized into our church? Do you realize how important it is to be baptized into our church? And they subtly dance you to the point where you get so confused, you don't even know what in the world. You were so clear before, and now you're like, you're, you're car sick. And I was like, what happened? It's like it's the same group that's like, you know what? I know you think it's just Jesus, but this is the new rules. There aren't any. And that's the point here. So they had no small dispute, it says in verse 2, dissension or dispute with them. So they determined Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go to, yo, yo, we want to settle this? Let's take it outside. Outside where? Let's go to Jerusalem. You guys think you came from Jerusalem? There's no possible way those guys down there are going to agree with you. Oh, yeah, well, I know what you are, but what am I? You know, that kind of thing. And so, all right, well, down we go. And so off we go. Paul takes his crew, these guys take their crew, and it's the showdown of doctrine time down in Jerusalem. So they went sent on their way, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversions of the Gentiles. They caused great joy to all the brothers. Verse 4 says, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church, this is Paul, Barnabas, and the crew, and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. And said it is necessary to circumcise them and command them to keep the law of Moses. Did you notice who the group was that was the group of that was called the group of the circumcision? It was a bunch of Pharisees who had joined the church. The problem is they were Pharisee Christians at best, but they were not Christians alone. This is what happens when you add another word to your Christian experience. And since they were all about the law of Moses, they were Christians all about the law of Moses. God's like, that is not the way this works. The apostles came together to consider this matter. Paul gives his testimony. These guys say, this is what we've decided. Paul says, let me tell you what God has done. As a result of it, 15 verse 22, it pleased the apostles and elders in the whole church to send chosen men with their company of Antioch, uh, to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsavas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, and they wrote this letter. And this is the letter that comes from Jerusalem. It says, The apostles and elders and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, again, where Paul had come from, greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your soul, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good to us, being assembled in one accord, or with one accord, to send chosen men with you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, that validates the letter so you know Paul didn't write it on the way back, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep these things, you will do well. Farewell. And that was it. They sent the letter off. Verse 31 says, when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Notice they didn't say these were even things required for salvation. They said, well, now that you're saved, don't go to idols. Don't drink blood. Don't take things strangled. That's all, by the way, idolic rituals. And idolatrous rituals and from sexual immorality. In other words, they laid no trip on it whatsoever. So back in our text, Paul says, I went down there and God settled this there. So why are they... Here's the thing, though God had settled the deal, that doesn't mean that they're not going to go somewhere else and try to keep purporting their, their issue. And you know how this plays out. Let me, let me just kind of go for something that's a bit of a nerve. The gauging. You remember that? Like around the world, somewhere in the rough ballpark of at least 34 million pounds was spent to try to discover a gay gene. No, you're probably aware of the fact no gay gene was ever found. Oh, it was huge before that. It was in all kinds of articles. It was all over the place, the gay gene, the gay gene. Do you have the gay gene? But once it wasn't discovered and the funding stopped, that did not stop those who pushed it from still saying there was one, even though now they knew they had no evidence whatsoever to substantiate it. 
And the idea is simple. Just because someone says there isn't, doesn't mean that's going to stop people from their agenda. That's the idea. Scientists, when I was a kid, and understand, I wasn't a kid that long ago. Although I think when I was a kid, the earth was only 10 million years old. Now I think it's, what is it, like 200 million or 20? I mean, I wasn't at that school that long ago. But, but please understand, it was, we were actually entering into, a, into another ice age. That's what we were told by scientists. They were like, we've looked at all the evidence, and we are going to enter. And by the year 2000, we will enter into, begin to enter into an ice age. Interesting, some of those same scientists are the same ones who have pulled up the information now and said we are entering into a, you know, a global warming. And the idea of it is, and, and, and I'm not trying to, you know, just kind of create confusion. That's the last thing I want to do. The point is this. Just because something is disproven does not stop a person from their agenda if they're determined to, put, to try to keep going. That's the point. And though these people had been shut down, if you will, in Jerusalem, they just went elsewhere. And one of the places they apparently went was to Galatia. So though they were told in Jerusalem, hey, look, at that's not the case. You cannot lay this Jewish trip on these people. They weren't raised Jewish. Why are you going to try to make them Jewish now? And they're like, well, we'll just go elsewhere and try to make it happen there. And you'll find this will happen. There are people, their whole thing is their issue, and they'll just go from church to church and place to place. And if they're not welcome one place, they'll just go another, and they'll keep pushing their agenda. But in verse 11, it gets crazy because at this point, you can see the residue. After they've dealt with this, Paul, in verse 11, says that there was that Peter had showed up there. And we don't have any record of that in the book of Acts, but he shows up in Antioch. And it's sort of like secondary school games. Do you remember the lunchroom, how that was? And there were the cool kids' tables and the uncool kids' tables. And it was sort of like, what happens when the, there's a new table of cool kids when you were at the old table of the cool kids? See, Peter had the freedom to go and sit with anyone, and he didn't seem to have a problem until a bunch of Jewish people showed up. And the moment that happened, he kind of got up from their table at the lunchroom, if you will, and he went and sat with the others. And Paul did not, well, Paul did is Paul didn't have it. And from the whole classroom, if you will, from the whole cafeteria, Paul stands up and he's like, what do you think you're doing? How could you, who don't even live like a Jewish person, try to make other people live like Jewish people? And then he goes into the point of our doctrine, and this is how we close this up. He says in verse 16, this is what we know full well. You cannot get right by the works of the law. So why are you adding it? If the works of the law do not save you, why are you trying to add it? Now understand the works of the law make clear they're like a mirror. They point out defects so you can go get help. The help is the cross of Christ. Paul will tell us that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ, the pedagogos, the idea of a person that's a personal helper to teach you school till you get to the point where you're actually handed to the Father to learn his trade. But please hear me in this. We do this all the time. See, I mean, here's the way it plays. Is that we know in, in, inherently that Jesus and Jesus alone saves us. It's his death on the cross that washes us from all of our sins. And we know that when we came to Christ, we died there. The part we seem to often forget is that the story of the gospel is a death and a resurrection. And Paul wanted to know the power of the resurrection. But you can't have the power of a resurrection without a death. You can't see the power of a resurrection without seeing something die first. And Paul says, a man cannot be made right. Dikaio, by the way. sorry. Literally, uh, to render just or innocent. The word here. And the idea is simple. Again, we're clearing a debt. This is why Jesus says at the cross, paid in full. A man is not justified by these works of the law, but by faith. Faith is not the Savior, faith is the tool. 
It's the vehicle. Now, understand it says, look at, we've believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, we'll never have their debt paid. So hear me out on this. If there's something you can do to win, to earn, to elicit that, then it becomes some form of work. But what is the one thing that is necessary if it really is simply about kindness? The only thing that is left is exercising trust. Now, we make these words so fancy. And we kind of play them out so we can sort of sit in a stained glass room and talk about how smart we are because we know that there's this faith or that faith. And there are like things that aren't even in Scripture. Faith just means trust. It's all it means. The word, most of the words that we find in Scripture are not unique to the Bible. You're probably aware of that, right? It isn't like we took a word and we make them, we make them rituals and we make them rites and we make them all of these things. And there were like all kinds of profane people using the words before that, but those were the words that communicated with the people. Like the word baptize just meant immerse. People use it all the time. That when a ship sank or you died something, and now it's like, okay, well, now it's like, oh, it's a Christian term. But the word means immerse. And I, the reason I say that is, is we make faith something that we, it's like, you know, what does it mean to believe in something? You know, when I say I believe in Santa Claus, what does that mean? I believe it exists. But when I, I believe in Lucas, I'm not saying I just believe it exists. That's kind of silly. He's in front of me. But it's like that I have some kind of confidence in his character. And believe it comes from the same word. Pisicho. It just means Trust. And if I'm going to be kind to Lucas and say, Lucas, I'd like to give you something, and he's naturally resistant because kindness before this has probably looked like something that was a sales pitch. So he has a right to kind of be like curious. Okay, wait a minute, resistant, wait a minute, what are you trying to give me and what are you expecting of me? And then all of that, all of a sudden, I'm like, no, look at Lucas, I just want to bless you, I want to give you this. The only way he's going to really receive it properly will be to trust me. Does that make sense? Now, trust did not, listen, trust was not what made me give him the thing. My love and kindness for him gave him the thing. Trust is what allowed him to receive it. It was the vehicle. But today we all have these like seminars and you can go to places about the power of your faith. It moves the hand of God. Actually, I actually believe what it does is it actually opens up your hands to receive what he's already trying to give you. Because otherwise, what you're doing is you're making yourself the, the sort of impetus and God the responder. Did you think that through? It's like, if I can worship God enough, I can get on his favor, and then he'll bless me. Oh, wait a minute. Well, I thought it was a grace. <clears throat> if I prayed enough, well, then surely I'll get the job or the place or the house or the girl or the guy or the whatever. But I thought it was about grace. Now, I'm not telling you you shouldn't pray. But if you're trying to do it to, to make God do something, kind of, do you know what we call that? Manipulation. That's what we call that. Think about it. I, there are times where I know a lot more than I let on when my kids are trying to manipulate me. And there's certain things they can do and certain ways they can play things that sometimes it's like so over the top. It's like, uh, clearly there's a point behind this. But the Lord often pulls me to the table at that point and says, now let me ask you, how often do you do that with me? Now, I'll be honest, that's not always the case. There are times where I'm like, I wake up and I'm like, God, I just love you. I just want to spend the day reading your word. And, you know, I'm just going to pick a book and let's just, let's read it together. You know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I just want to go someplace and, then, and I'm finding all these cool little parky kind of things and green belts and places around around London, and I'm just kind of, and now where the sun's coming up a little bit, you know, I'm like trying to find that one place where it's like there's like this much sun shining on a wall, and I'm like standing there just reading my Bible, just kind of like, and, and, and I'm like, God, I just, I just want to be with you. But then that's not always the case. There's a lot of times it's not that at all. There are times where it's just like, God, I'm going to fast, and I'm going to pray because there's a situation that I really want to change in my, in my heart or in my house or in my whatever. And I'm like, God, I'm going to fast, or I'm, going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to spend the whole day, I'm going to do this thing. And God's like, no, you know what, how about this? Just make yourself available to me because I already have this thing handled. And all of a sudden it starts becoming about grace again. 
He was looking, you'll never be justified by the works of the law. You can't get right by doing it yourself. This is not a DIY thing. You get right by trusting the one who already has proven himself and wants to give you the very thing that, that makes you right. He was looking, so here's the case. Now, did all of you get a little piece of paper? No, did, did, we, did you get those? Okay, hopefully, hopefully so. The reason is, I think that verse is so ridiculous. If you, if you came in late, ha, 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 just kidding, we'll have some more at the back. Um, <clears throat> but I think this verse is so profound. If we got this through our head, our whole life would be changed. And this is how it closes up. Look at what it says. I mean, verse 17 is almost a kind of a silly argument, but it points out something about grace. He says, if we seek to be justified by Christ and we ourselves are found sinners, well, then is Christ the minister of sin? And you go, what in the world does that mean? He says, listen, if I seek to be made right by Christ, and in seeking to be made right by Christ, I discover that I'm a sinner. Did Jesus make that sin there? Did Jesus put that sin there? And of course he's going, that's the dumbest argument I ever heard. I put that sin there. Jesus just made me aware of it so that he could fully solve the problem. So like if I build, like if I'm trying to build again, because my self-reliance, which can be by my intellect, it can be by my discipline, it can be by my intensity or passion, and I can tend to try to reside in one of those areas to get right with God. You know, I'm not going to pray, I'm going to pray, you know? Then God will really hear me. I'm not going to just you know, try to do something. I'm going to really discipline myself. But you're naturally doing it. And what you're doing is you're saying, God, this is something I'm going to do for you. And God's like, I'm not asking you to do something for me. I'm asking you to do it with me. Just hand yourself over to me and let me do this. There's where the grace is. And there's a woman in Scripture... She's a Syrophoenician and her daughter's possessed. Jesus is there. And it's probably one of the weirdest conversations you can read in the Gospels because she comes over and she's like, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus is like, it's not good to take the bread and throw it to the dogs. And you're thinking, my goodness, this poor woman's suffering. And Jesus is dissing her. And she says, yeah, but, you know, the dogs, all the dogs need are crumbs from the table. And he's amazed at how he's just he's he's, in, he's wowed by her faith, and understand the whole point of it's this because see it starts with this. She's speaking the terms that I don't even know if she even knows what they mean. She's Syrophoenicians don't call anyone son of David. She may not even know who David was, but she had kind of learned. It was almost like in those newspapers where it says if you pray this prayer sixteen times, you can get the Bentley. You know, have, and you could see almost rehearsing. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. Have, how do I say that? Have mercy, mer- have mercy, son of David. Jesus is like, can you just talk to me? Some of us have a really bad prayer life because we're too busy trying to impress God with our prayers instead of actually press into him with them. She finally goes, help. And he goes, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for the cry of your heart, not the script of your mouth. But you're praying, and you don't feel like you're getting an answer, so you know what? I'm going to pray more intensely. God, please, God, I need it this time. You're like, that's oh, not working either. I know I'll pray in King James. God, bring us God's like, stop the show. Can we just get alone in the closet and talk? But there's one other side to grace, too. You have not been set free to sin. Please know that. Because that kind of grace is no great grace at all. And if you feel like, well, Jesus just saved me so I can do whatever the heck I want now, you are taking the love of God for granted. So this is verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. That's the point here. I've been crucified. The person that I was, the person that you were, died. The desperate, 
Vacant, empty, hurt, broken, damaged, confused, weak, fearful, dreading, overwhelmed on the cross. The slave, loser, hater, failure, life sucker, herder, user, abuser, destroyer, cursor, ruiner. On the cross. Guilty, filthy, ashamed, regretting, stuck, taken on the cross. Helpless, hapless, hopeless, taken over on the cross. The person I used to be is dead. And if you can't say this verse, and you'll never be able to say this verse by anything but grace. But if you can't say it, then you need Jesus tonight. And He's offering. The great news is Jesus paid the bill. Dying to the law is only going to be good if I can be resurrected. But this is the way I'm resurrected. I died. I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live now, but it's Christ who lives in me. The guy I used to be, he no longer lives. And believe me, if I didn't believe that, I would never have gotten married, and I most certainly would never have had children. I would never be a pastor. The old guy, he's just not around anymore. I am so thankful. But it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith. I live this life now trusting the Son of God. And let me tell you about him. These are the two things. If there are two things to put out, he loved me and gave himself for me. And now the same person who loved me and gave himself for me lives in me. So what do you think my life's going to look like? It's to love you and give myself, not to you, but give myself for you. That's the idea. It's no longer I who lived. The guy that lived before this point, well, that particular guy, by the way, would not love you. I guarantee you that. And he certainly would not give himself for you. He would give you for him. But that guy died on the cross. And the new person... The one that Christ lives in, that particular person now is driven and led by the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And now he says, now who do we now, as I do that through you, who are we going to love and give ourselves for? That's the point, beloved. So I'm not going to set aside the grace of God. How can I set aside the grace of God? Because listen, even now, any ministry that takes place is grace. I'm never going to earn this. You're never going to earn this. It's grace. God is so ridiculously, obscenely kind that He'll use us and He'll bless others by doing it. So look at it. If righteousness came by the law, then Christ died in vain. If I really think somehow now that I've given my life to Christ, I could set the grace of Christ aside and try to make it now about works, what in the world am I doing? How can I preach to others that this is about the gift of God if I'm trying to earn now the rest of my life? I'll never earn this calling. I'll never earn you. I'll never earn the fact that I have two beautiful children and a wonderful life. I'll never earn the fact that every day living in this city is a miracle. I'll never earn the favor that I get when I can walk into some place and somebody smiles because they recognize me. I don't know how that works. It's grace. That's the thing I know. And the same with you. And as we go to prayer tonight, is it really about grace in your life? No Muslim has it. No Buddhist has it. No Hindu has it. Too busy working off, but you can't pay the bill. It's too big. Beloved, tonight... If we could just trust, we could walk out of here so ridiculously full of joy. He's like, I want to give it to you. All I'm asking you is to trust me so I can give it to you. As you give me the ruins of your life, we're going to kill it and we're going to start over. And we're going to make you somebody whole and joyful and loving and selfless and caring Don't you want that? I do.
Jesus' death on the cross pays for it all. His resurrection promises me there's a whole new life to live now, beloved. And it's, by the way, also by grace. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for the magnificent beauty of your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have been crucified with you. It's not just about ascribing to a doctrine and then trying to work it off. It, is, it began by grace. It continues through grace, by grace, and it will end by grace. So, Lord, your gifts, your kindness, your calling, irrevocable. So, Lord, forgive us for where we've been trying to earn what you want to give, because I know it insults you. And tonight, here in this room, Lord, I just pray that you would fill us with faith. You told us that faith comes by hearing and that your word. Tonight, you have been putting deposits in our trust account. And that trust account now has fresh faith. May we spend it on you tonight. And say, Lord, I give you this. I give you, I give you me. I give you my problems. I give you my challenges. I give you my dreams. I give you my whatever. Because, Lord... You have a better plan than mine. So please, Lord. And tonight, at the sound of this voice, have you accepted the gift of Jesus? It's a gift. But by faith you receive it. Jesus died on the cross to pay for all of your guilt, just like mine. He rose again on the third day, according to Scripture, just like the Scripture promised. The scriptures promised and offers us now to let that person who was in debt and enslaved to die and a new person to rise up where Jesus himself manifests. I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to say amen. If you've done this before, you don't have to do it ever again. But you're welcome to renew your vows for a sense of sentiment. Here's the prayer. God, I am a sinner. Just like anyone else, I'm a sinner. And that's a bill to pay. But you've told me in Scripture that you so loved me. Love was your motivation. That you paid the price with your only begotten Son, Jesus the Christ, who died on the cross so that all of my debt could be paid. And there, if I'm willing to accept that payment by faith, the person that I've hated so much can die there. And in receiving that gift, you come and live inside of us. The one who loved me and gave himself for me, that you would turn me now into a person who loves others and gives himself for them. So, here I am. I accept that gift, confessing Jesus is my ransom, my Savior, my payment, and my Lord. So, I'm yours. Thank you for paying my debt. Thank you for setting me free. Now use me, I pray, in Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. Amen.